When it comes to a case study of confident Christians throughout the ages, it's my belief that Paul was probably the most confident Christian to ever live. In order to make my case, I want to remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book when Paul described the confidence that filled his heart as he reminded his audience that the one who's begun a good work in us would also complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but that fills me with great confidence in knowing that Jesus is going to complete this work that he started within us. Not only that, but Paul was also determined to help others to become confident Christians, and he did this by encouraging every believer to move forward in the joyful and confident expectation of our salvation. And with this as the focus, we should take a moment here in the beginning of this study to search our own hearts by asking a simple question, and the question is this, am I a confident Christian? Am I a confident Christian, or am I a disciple who's still filled with many different doubts? Now listen, if it's true that you're a Christian who still lacks the confidence that we need to step up and serve our Savior with great assurance, well then this study should help you to understand the source of Paul's confidence. And as we take the time to consider the infinite source of Paul's confidence, well it's my hope that we will follow in his footsteps so that we might also become confident Christians. Well, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who are walking in the confidence, the self-confidence of the flesh, well, they're actually just being foolish. Conversely, those who walk by faith with Jesus discover a concrete confidence which is found in Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that Christians should be confident in Christ's revelation. Secondly, we'll consider how Christians should be confident in Christ's righteousness. And thirdly and finally, we'll consider how Christians should be confident in Christ's resurrection. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Here we find Paul, he's describing the confidence that every Christian can enjoy by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we make our way to the, th- to the third chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that Paul began this chapter by encouraging the original recipients of this epistle to beware of the wolves in sheep's clothing who were actively leading people astray. He wanted them to beware of false teachers and to beware of the mutilation who were calling Christians to circumcision rather than faith in Jesus Christ. And now that he's encouraged the the Christians there in Philippi to safeguard their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we find Paul now helping his audience to understand that those who trust in their flesh are fools. Those who trust in their flesh are fools. Conversely, those who trust in Christ Jesus can become confident Christians who are certain of their salvation. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Philippians chapter 3. I want to focus your attention beginning there at verse 3. Here Paul declares, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have No confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who trust in the frailty of their fallen flesh will eventually realize that they had no real reason to be confident at all. If you're trusting in the frailty of fallen flesh, you should have no confidence at all. Think about it. You know, there are people who are physically strong, and yet they were easily brought down by a tiny coronavirus. Physically strong specimens, you know, people who worked out at the gym every day and then got sick and died from coronavirus. It's tragic. Their their confidence was in their physical strength, and a little virus took them out. There are those who are physically beautiful, and their confidence is in their physical beauty, and, and they think they'll never get wrinkles. All the people laughing are old. We, we recognize this is the way it goes, right? Everyone ends up wrinkled. You know, and, and, and so you're confident. What happens to your confidence when all of a sudden the beauty you once had in your youth is now gone? There are those who, among us who are very intelligent. And if they find that their confidence is in their intelligence, well, you know, a lot of these people will wake up one day and they've lost their mental acuity. It happens. I sometimes wake up trying to remember who I even am. It's for this reason that Paul, he encouraged his audience to become those believers who are worshiping God in the spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and finding zero confidence in our flesh. If you want to become a confident Christian, then we must worship God in the spirit And we must rejoice in Christ Jesus, all the while recognizing that there's zero confidence in the flesh that will benefit us. Just to be clear, the word confidence, which is found there in verses 3 and 4, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context was used in reference to those who are free from doubt. I'm guessing that most of us struggle with doubt from time to time, but the, the person who is truly confident has zero doubts. The same word confidence is also used in reference to the persuasion of faith that fills our hearts with assurance. And as we consider the meaning of this word, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I confidently standing upon the solid foundation of saving faith, or am I still trying to establish self-confidence through the works of my flesh? Is my confidence found in my faith placed in Jesus Christ, or is my confidence found in my flesh, leading to many doubts? With these questions in mind, let's take some time to consider the confidence that Paul had. And with that, I want to back up and begin reading here in Philippians chapter 3. Let's look back at verse 3, where Paul again declares, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no, that is, zero confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. And he says this, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Why? Well, because notice, he was circumcised the eighth day. I want to stop right here because, you know, Paul's addressing those of the mutilation who were coming in saying, well, you can only have confidence in Christ if you're circumcised. And Paul's saying, hey, we're the circumcision who worship God in spirit, not, not because of our flesh, right? So now he's saying, look, look, they might think that they have confidence, but I have confidence more so. Why? Because I was circumcised according to the Abrahamic covenant. Paul here is presenting a case against self-confidence by first saying, if anyone can have confidence, it's me. Why? Well, because everything was done right in my life. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the Abrahamic covenants. The instructions that the Lord presented to Abraham are found in Genesis chapter 17. There we learn that the male descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised on the eighth day And so Paul here is assuring his audience, hey, that's me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And not only was he circumcised on the eighth day, but it's there in verse 5 where we also learn that he was from the stock of Israel. Remember, Abraham had two sons. And only one was the son of promise, Isaac. 
And then the promises, you know, went down from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And Paul's saying, I'm of Israel. If anyone has a reason to be confident in the flesh, Paul's saying, it's me. I was circumcised according to the Abrahamic covenant. I am of the, the promises made to Israel. Paul's saying, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel who descended where? From the tribe of Benjamin, he says here. Just to be clear, I'll remind you that Benjamin was Israel's last child who he had with his wife, Rachel. And she died during labor. And it's also interesting to note here that Paul's parents, they actually named him at birth Saul. Now Saul, this is a name that was designed to honor Israel's first king, King Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so you better believe that there is great pride here in this family, this family of Benjamites who, who, who produce a son and call him Saul. And it's for this reason that Paul goes on to refer to himself here as a Hebrew, but not just any old Hebrew. He says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That word Hebrew, which is found there in the middle of verse 5, was initially used in reference to Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham was called a Hebrew, uh, which is actually a a word that is a locational designation. The the word Hebrew uh, literally means one from beyond. And, And so like... You know, if, if, he was at, if he was at the store Bed Bath & Beyond, he would be in the Beyond section, right? But he was from Beyond. He was from Beyond the River. It's another way of calling him an immigrant. Abraham was called an immigrant because he was, in, he was, he was a Hebrew or an immigrant who dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And, and so he wasn't a local in this area when he settled down. And in light of this background, you know, Paul, Paul owns this word, Hebrew. He claims it for himself. He wasn't just an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew, and not just a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews who descended from Abraham. Paul also identified himself according to his religious affiliation within first century Judaism, which had many different groups. And with this in mind, let's take another look there at verse 5. Here Paul informs his audience that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Now it'll help you to know that the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of their day and age. They diligently upheld the traditions and the practices passed down to them from previous generations. They were quick to reject any theological principles that were in conflict with Orthodox Judaism, and they were faithful to observe the Sabbath laws and the dietary restrictions and the sacrificial requirements. And what this means then is that Paul had been a conservative Hebrew who was strictly adhering to every jot and every tittle of the law. Not only that, but he was also a zealous Pharisee who was happy to go and persecute the followers of Christ. And notice with me again there at the beginning of verse 6. Here he declares, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul was a Pharisee who, who went out of his way to persecute Christians in order to protect the conservative values of Judaism. They saw Christianity as a cult that was distorting, you know, the whole plan and purpose of of Judaism. And so concerning his zeal for conservative Judaism, he went out persecuting the church. As a matter of fact, he was there when the first church martyr was was was, uh, actually stoned to death talking about Stephen who was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And we learn there, according to Luke's account, that Saul, who we now know as Paul, was right there to collect the coats for those who wanted to pick up rocks and stone Stephen to death. Paul was there. 
He also sought permission from his leaders to go and pursue and persecute the disciples who fled from Israel. And, and he, he went to and, and sought you know, permission to persecute the Christians who fled for Damascus. And I'll remind you, it was actually on the road to Damascus where Paul found himself in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that Jesus made a special return, return trip to the earth just to meet Paul. No. I'm guessing that this was the moment when he was caught up into heaven and spent time with Jesus in some sort of spiritual state. Maybe that's the case. We can't say for sure. But it was at this point in time when Paul somehow found himself face to face with Jesus Christ. And it was at that moment in time when he realized that he had placed his confidence in the wrong person. Up until this point in time, his confidence was in himself. Circumcised the eighth day, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Israelite from Benjamin, so on and so forth. This was where his confidence was found. And then he found himself with Jesus and realized there's, there's nothing to be confident about here. And with that, he writes verse seven here and declares what things were gained to me These I have counted loss for Christ. All of my benefits, all of the privileges from from this earthly position meant nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. Before his conversion to Christ, Paul was confident in the works of his flesh. But then he finally realized that all of his best works were like filthy rags, which were unable to save him from the condemnation of the law. I want to consider how Paul explains it here in our text today. If you would, look with me here at Philippians chapter 3. I want to focus your attention at verse 8. Here Paul goes on to declare this. He says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's reflecting on the day when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to this former Pharisee, and it was at this point in time when Paul was able to place everything into a proper perspective. As he considered everything that he had been trying to achieve in his life, he came to the conclusion that it was all rubbish. It was all refuse. It was all garbage when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus. And it was for this reason that he decided to give up everything, counting all of it as just garbage so that he could begin to get to know his Savior, Jesus. I like the way that the scholars who created the Amplified Bible render the beginning of verse 8. They put it like this. More than that, I count everything as lost compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him a joy unequaled. Now just to be clear, the you know, when Paul's talking about giving up everything for the priceless privilege and the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, that word knowing, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it's used in reference to the deeper and more perfect knowledge that comes to us from the revelation of Christ Jesus. The revelation of Christ Jesus, well, this has to do with the revealing of Christ Jesus. The same word knowing is used in reference to the enlarged knowledge that fills us with the moral wisdom, which is then revealed to those who embrace the revelation of our Redeemer, Jesus. And in light of this definition, it's important for us to realize that we're speaking about relational knowledge according to the revelation of the Lord. You know, as, as you engage in a relationship with somebody, uh, somebody else, you know, they, they reveal themselves to you. You get to know them more and more uh, through the relationship. 
It's through the relationship that the revelation of that person becomes you know, knowledge of who they are and what they believe and what they like doing. And so it's important for us to realize that we're talking about this relational knowledge of knowing Jesus, which you know, is revealed to us. You know, it's, in, it's in this relationship with Jesus that knowledge is then revealed as we spend time studying the Bible and as we spend time praying and, and listening uh, for the, 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 the word of God to be revealed to us, the Lord reveals himself to us and in this way we have this relational knowledge. And I like the way that Paul explains it in one of his many pregnant sentences which is found in Ephesians chapter one. It's there where he prays this. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul here is praying for the Christians there at the church in Ephesus so that they might increase in spiritual wisdom according to the revelation which is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, this revelation which is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is what enlightens our minds with understanding about who he is and what he's done for us. Is there any higher knowledge in this world than the knowledge that comes from the revelation of Jesus Christ? The revelation that comes from our relationship with Jesus then fills our hearts with confidence because the more we get to know about him, the more we realize that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and he will complete the work that he began in us. Why, because I'm awesome? No. Because he is. In our relationship with him as we you know, continue to consider his revelation to us, we begin to experience the exceeding greatness of his power, which is given to those who believe in him. Christian, listen, if you're lacking confidence in your Christian life, then the chances are it's because you're still trying to work it out yourself. If you lack confidence in your Christian life, then the chances are it's because you still think it's because, well, you were born this way and you're of this lineage and you come from this people and you did these things and There's no confidence in any of that. And if you're still struggling with doubts, then it's time to realize that, listen, if Paul wasn't good enough to make his way into the good graces of God, you're not going to make it. If Paul wasn't good enough, what chance do we have? Well, in the flesh, zero. We have zero chance. Thankfully for us, those who will simply rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ will begin to enjoy a relationship with our Redeemer who has revealed himself within the pages of his holy word. And as we spend time studying the revelation of God's word and as we spend time seeking his face in prayer, we end up being filled with the hope of his calling that comes from the confidence of Christ Jesus. And this brings us now to our second point, because listen, Christians should not only be confident in Christ's revelation as we continue to get to know him, but Christians should also be confident in Christ's righteousness. And to explain what I mean, let's continue to consider the confidence that Paul is describing here in our text today. If you would look with me again here at Philippians chapter three, I wanna back up and begin reading at verse eight. Here Paul declares, Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and, notice, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes, uh, which is from God by faith. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's continuing to describe the way that his confidence was coming from Christ Jesus. And while it's true that his confidence came from the revelation that revealed the knowledge of Christ Jesus, it's also true that Paul found great confidence in the fact that the Lord had covered his sins with the imputation of righteousness. I have no doubt that Paul's heart was filled with hope as he realized that he wasn't being expected to establish his own righteousness through the works of the law. You know, the, according to the works of the law, you know, it's a hurdle so, so tall that, that we'll never be able to jump it. And so when Paul finally realized that he wasn't required to keep the law in order to be saved, I have no doubt that his confidence in Christ began to rise. As he realized that the Lord Jesus will simply impute his righteousness to those who trust in him, I'm guessing that the relief flooded into his heart and he became a confident Christian. Now to better understand the way in which the imputation of Christ's righteousness results in our confidence, I want to consider the way that Paul explains it in his letter to the church in Rome. So if you would hold your place here in the book of Philippians and let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 4. And as we make our way to the fourth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that the word imputation, as I'm talking about the imputation of righteousness, this word imputation uh, is something uh, that, that uh, I guess the word could also be rendered credited or accounted or ascribed to another person. For example, listen, if a billionaire imputes a million dollars into your bank account, wouldn't that be nice? Talking to you, Elon Musk. Listen, if, if a billionaire imputes or inputs a million dollars into your bank account, then they've made you a millionaire and not that you've done anything for it. Wouldn't that be nice if somebody just imputed a million dollars into your bank account? Just wake up one day and there's a million dollars in your bank account. That'd be beautiful. Well, in light of this illustration, you know, I want to consider the way that the Lord Jesus simply imputes his righteousness into the spiritual account of those who trust in him. Let's consider the way that Paul explains it here in Romans chapter 4. Look with me there beginning at verse 4. Here Paul declares, now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as what? As debt. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, there's that word, imputed, credited, accounted, it's from the same Greek word, his faith is accounted for what? For righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who try to work their way into heaven will eventually discover that they still have a sin debt that must be settled. You see, if you, if you do a good thing, well, that's the, that's the thing you should have done. But that doesn't make up for the bad thing. You know, if, if, you, if you rob a rich person and, and then take a portion of that money and give it to someone who's poor, th- does the charity make up for the robbery? Well, of course not, unless you're the government. But so, but seriously, you, you can't make up for a bad thing by just doing a good thing. The bad thing still has to be paid for. And with that, we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus took care of the bad things on the cross. Jesus died for our sins there on the cross, so that he could simply impute his righteousness to sinners who trust in him. 
And so Paul here is describing the way that the Lord imputes or credits his righteousness to those who are sinners that trust in him and apart from the works of the law. And listen, this not only includes the forgiveness of our lawless deeds by which our sins are covered, but this also renders the born-again believer positionally righteous in the eyes of God the Father. Listen, if you're a Christian, then when God the Father looks at you, he's looking at you through the lens of Christ's righteousness or under the covering of Christ's righteousness. All of your sins have been paid for. And praise the Lord for that. In order to further grasp the way that the imputation of righteousness is received by faith and not by the works of the law, we should consider the example of Abraham. If you would look with me again here at Romans chapter 4, we're going to skip down to to verse 20. You know, Paul's been talking about Abraham here, and now he tells us that Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted. There's that word. It was imputed. It was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Here in these verses, we find Paul elaborating on this doctrine of imputation by appealing to the example of Abraham. In the light of his example, you know, we can see here that the imputation of righteousness, it's not earned by keeping the law. No, instead, it's received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God, And it was accounted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. And in the same way, those who are trusting in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, have also received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I like the way that Paul summed it up in Romans chapter 10. It's verse 4 where he says this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, some are trying to tell us that Christ is the law. Nope. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you've placed your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can have great confidence in knowing that you've been covered by the imputation of his righteousness. All of your sins, not some of them, not all your sins up until yesterday, Not all your sins up until your last mass. No, all of your sins have been covered by faith in Jesus Christ. While it's true that we were once spiritually bankrupt because of our sins and trespasses, it's also true that those who trust in Jesus Christ have been set free from our sin debt through the imputation of our Redeemer's righteousness. And listen, those who trust in Jesus not only receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but we also become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which provides every Christian with incredible confidence. With this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul explained it to a pastor named Titus. So continue holding your place there in Philippians. Let's turn in our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. You see, it's here in the third chapter of Titus where we find Paul. He's now connecting the dots between the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the hope that fills our hearts with the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. I want to consider the way that Paul puts it here in Titus chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here Paul says that when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping Titus to understand that those who trust in Jesus have received the imputation of righteousness. And not only that, 
but we've been washed with regeneration. We've been renewed with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, every born-again believer has been filled with the hope that fills our hearts with joyful and confident expectation. And it's the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation which is provided to us through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, Christians should not only be confident in Christ's revelation, and we should not only be confident in Christ's righteousness, but Christians ought to also be confident in Christ's resurrection. And to understand my point here, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 3. I want to continue to consider the source of Paul's confidence. And if you would look with me here in Philippians chapter 3, we'll back up and begin reading once again at verse 8. Here Paul declares, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's continuing to describe the confidence that he had as he looked forward to the future. When you look forward to the future, do you have hope? Are you filled with confidence? Or are you filled with fear? As you look forward to the future, like, is it fear that fills your hearts? Or do you have that faith that that fills you with confidence? Paul had complete confidence. Paul's heart was filled with confidence, and and it's the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And while it's true that in this world he was willing to lose everything for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, it's also true that he was looking forward to the future as he considered how the power of Christ's resurrection would eventually impact his life. I don't know about you, but I've spent time considering this power of Christ's resurrection. Now, I'm hoping that I get caught up in the rapture because I'd rather not die. But, uh, But either way, listen, there's coming a day when we will experience, Christian, we will experience the power of the resurrection. What is it gonna be like? Can you imagine just being filled with the power of the resurrection as we ascend into heaven and are, and are transformed? I, I just, I, I, it's hard to imagine. I can't believe it. It's going to happen though, Christian. And that's, that's what I look forward to in the future. I look forward to experiencing that power. And just to be clear, the word power here found in verse 10, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the inherent power that resides within a person or a thing by virtue of its nature. And when it comes to the power of Christ's resurrection, we're talking about an infinite God. And so by nature of infinite God, well, we must be talking about infinite power or what we might call omnipotence. Now, in order to more fully grasp this omnipotence or this infinite power that raised Jesus' lifeless body up from the dead, we should take a moment to consider the role that the Trinity played in our Redeemer's resurrection. It's in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul tells us that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Also, in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And in John chapter 2, the Lord Jesus informed his audience that if they destroyed this temple, that he would raise it up in three days, and he's referring to his own body. So Jesus tells his audience that he's going to raise himself up from the dead. Finally, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead. So so think it through here. We have God raising Jesus from the dead. We have the Father raising Jesus from the dead. The Son raising Jesus from the dead. And the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. How How do we make sense of all this? Well, there's one God who has revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three persons within the Godhead 
had a part in raising Jesus from the dead. And what this also means then is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God who each possess the infinite power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. With that, I want to consider Paul's testimony of the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. And we find this in Acts chapter 26 where Paul is standing trial before King Agrippa. And so he's sharing a legal testimony here. And after sharing the conversion, uh, his own conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul goes on to declare this before King Agrippa. He says, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, here in this legal testimony before King Agrippa, Paul assured the court that Christ Jesus not only died on the cross, but that he also rose up from the dead according to the messianic prophecies that we find throughout the Old Testament. And it was on that day uh, there on the road to Damascus where Paul realized that Jesus is the risen Redeemer. Jesus is the risen Christ that uh, was revealed in the Old Testament, Not only that, but he also realized that he was the first of many, that he's the first fruits to rise up from the dead. And you might be thinking, well, what about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus was resuscitated, not resurrected. He he didn't rise up and get a new body on that day, no. He was resuscitated, would eventually die again, and then be resurrected. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and those who trust in him then will also experience the power of his resurrection. And to further grasp the way in which the Lord Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, we should spend some time considering the argument that Paul presented to the Christians in Corinth. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we make our way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to point out that Paul here is addressing the arguments of the religious leaders who were at that point in time rejecting the doctrine of the resurrection. I'm referring, of course, to the Sadducees. The, uh, the Sadducees was another religious group within Judaism that rejected the idea that there was a life after death or a resurrection from the grave. They were called the Sadducees for various reasons, but one of them being that they didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they were sad, you see. You know. I didn't write it. I just retold it. <laughs> the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. It's for this reason that Paul decided to present this, uh, present this argument for the, erection, uh, the, for the resurrection. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, where he declares, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Simply put, if Christ failed to rise up from the grave, there's no reason then for us to be here this morning. If Christ failed to rise up from the grave, we are all here wasting a beautiful Sunday morning. If Jesus remained in the grave, then there's no reason to worship him. If Jesus remained in the grave, there's no need to study this Bible. If there's no resurrection from the grave, then there's no reason to believe in everlasting life. And if there's no reason for us to believe in everlasting life, then there's no reason for us to go out and warn unbelievers about the the day of judgment, nor is there any uh, basis for believing that what anybody does is wrong necessarily. Conversely, if Jesus has in fact risen from the dead, 
then there's good reason to believe in the resurrection. And if there's reason to believe in the resurrection, well, then there's also reason to believe in the day of judgment. And if there's reason to believe in the day of judgment, then there's also a good reason to go and warn unbelievers about the everlasting torment, which will be experienced by those who reject our risen Redeemer. And as we consider these ramifications of Christ's resurrection, and as we consider what stands and falls on, on our, our, you know, uh, our doctrine of his resurrection, we should take a moment to ask, is there reason to believe in it? Are there good reasons for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And with this question in mind, we should take another look here at a statement that Paul presents here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, it's verse 20. There again, he declares, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul here was assuring his audience with great confidence that Christ Jesus has in fact risen up from the grave. And as we consider his confidence in Christ's physical resurrection, we must not forget Paul was so opposed to the Christian faith that he literally spent time persecuting the followers of Christ. He was so opposed to the Christian faith in, in, in considering Christianity as a cult that he went out persecuting Christians in order to bring an end to it. But then came the day when Saul became Paul, a born-again believer. What changed his mind? What, what turned this persecutor of, uh, of Christians you know, into a Christian who was being persecuted? Remember, he was a Pharisee who was persecuting Christians, and then he became a Christian who was being persecuted by Pharisees. For what reason? What changed his life? What changed his mind? Well, he presents his own testimony on a few occasions in the book of Acts. You can go read it for yourself. He says that he found himself face-to-face with our risen Redeemer, Jesus. And it was at that point in time when he was willing to give up everything just to know him. He gave up his position. He gave up his power. He gave up his prestige, all for the sake of knowing Jesus. And it's for this reason that he informed the Christians there in Philippi that he dedicated his life just to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death until the day when he finally attained the resurrection from the dead by the power of God. And from this, we can see then that Paul not only had confidence in Christ's resurrection, but he also had confidence as he looked forward to the day when he would be also raised from the dead. This reminds me of the confidence demonstrated by a woman named Martha. It was shortly after the death of her brother Lazarus, and it's in John chapter 11 where we learn about this day when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She was sad and yet she was confident concerning the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. And while it's true that she was confident that she would see her brother again in the resurrection, she still didn't fully grasp how the one she was talking to is the one who would actually raise her brother from the grave as well as those all those who trust in him and it's for this reason that Jesus actually took the time to present her with one of the most incredible truths that we find in the bible it's in John chapter 11 beginning at verse 25 where Jesus says to her I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Christian, listen, the Lord Jesus, he not only provides us with the proof for the resurrection, he is the resurrection. 
He is the resurrection and he is the life. And while it's true that it was necessary for him to be the first to rise up from the grave and then ascend into heaven, it's also true that he's promised to provide the same resurrection power to those who will repent and trust in him. And with that being the case, those who trust in him can have great confidence as we look forward to the future. You know, if you're looking at what's going on with the economy, if you look at what's going on in the world, if you look at what's going on at the border, if you, look, if you look at all the things happening in this world, there's no reason to be confident about the future. If you look at the way the, the value of the dollar is decreasing while the price of everything is rising, there's no reason to be confident about the future. But if you look past that towards the power that will rise, that will raise our bodies up from the grave, then... Listen, we have every reason to be confident about the future. Because Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life and he will have the final say and he will usher in the final victory. And though we may die, those who trust in him will live again by his resurrection power. Now with all this in mind, it's my prayer that every believer here today We'll learn how to become a confident Christian. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that Christians can be confident in Christ's revelation. And the reason why is because it's the revelation of Christ Jesus that provides us with the spiritual wisdom that we need to realize that our confidence should be founded in our faith and not in our flesh. Christians should also be confident in Christ's righteousness. And the reason why is because it's the imputation of Christ's righteousness by which we are forgiven for our sins and then our hearts are filled with the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And finally, Christians should be confident in Christ's resurrection. And the reason why is because this is, uh, the, you know, the evidence of Christ's resurrection provides us with the proof that we need to believe that he is, in fact, the one with the power that it takes to raise every born-again believer up from the grave. This should fill our hearts with great confidence, regardless of what's happening here in this world. This world will soon be done. And the Lord will usher in a thousand-year reign. And we can have confidence in knowing that those who trust in him today will be gathered together with him in the new Jerusalem where we will rule and reign with the king of kings for a thousand years and then forevermore. Those who trust in Jesus have every reason to be confident. Therefore, rather than living a life like some sort of doubting disciple who isn't really sure whether or not to commit their lives to the Lord, or, no, no, don't, don't, don't go down that path. Instead, let's follow in the footsteps of Paul, who was willing to suffer the loss of all things and count it all as garbage just for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Much like Paul, let's become those believers who are ready to give up everything just so that we can spend our time serving our Savior. And as we follow in the footsteps of Paul, I can guarantee you, that you'll begin to experience the heavenly hope that fills the hearts of every confident Christian. Let's pray.